And if they were just wearing their ordinary clothes, they thought that the person noticed what they were wearing less than they actually did. If they were wearing something embarrassing, they thought they noticed it more than they actually did. So we tend to sort of overestimate how harshly other people are judging us, right? And underestimate how much they just notice us on the regular. And so you can imagine like, you know, I know it'd be ideal to sort of put this in a sports context. So I'm imagining a situation where like, you know, you're just practicing and you're kind of in the zone doing your own thing and not thinking anybody's really paying attention to you. And then you make some terrible mistake. And then you look around and think like, oh my God, everybody just saw that. And you think that the thing that people remember are the mistake you made. You think, you know, that is the thing everyone suddenly paid attention to, but they were noticing you the whole time, you know? Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes, and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. Today's episode is with Vanessa Bonds, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Cornell University. And I spoke to Vanessa about her recent book entitled You Have More Influence Than You Think, with a subtitle of How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. I found this topic fascinating, I think, because we spend so much time thinking about our ideas, interacting with other people, trying to create change, while often being overly worried about what judgments people make of us. The book and the discussion helps, helps you overcome some of those worries and it champions us to realise that we are influential. Vanessa, so pleased to have you on the podcast. How are things with you? Um, they're very well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, um, I'm keen to get into your book. Um, for those who don't know, you have more influence than you think. And I saw this on Twitter. I saw some of your material and uh, I just thought I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. And um, I've really, really enjoyed reading through it. I feel like I know you and <laughs> you don't know me. So I feel like I know you because you've made it quite personal as you've shared some of those uh, personal anecdotes and insights as, as you've gone through but for those who don't, don't know you could you just give us a bit of a background to to you yeah sure i mean i guess a lot of those anecdotes have to do with my husband and kids and so it's more sort of the the, the personal anecdotes but in terms of my professional background uh, i've been trained as a psychologist ever since my undergraduate university years um, I have a PhD in social psychology, and I basically do experimental social psychology where I look at social influence. 
Um, but I look at social influence in a different way than many other people do. So instead of looking at how to get people to do things for you, I look at our assumptions about what will get people to do things for you and whether they are accurate or not. Um, and what I find is that in general, people tend to have this misperception uh, that they're less influential than they actually are and that people are more likely to say no to them, uh, less likely to listen to them, notice them, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and so I, you know, that's my psychology training and I do these lab studies for the most part. And now uh, I'm a professor here at Cornell in organizational behavior, applying a lot of these insights to those kinds of topics like in the in the workplace, essentially. And, and so how did you get into this field? What kind of led you in? What was that? What was that journey, that path for you? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I, from the very beginning, as an undergrad, I fell in love with psychology, just immediately, it was it was a click, you know. Um, and then I graduated from my undergraduate degree and went into marketing, uh, because I really thought that advertising and marketing was going to be the place where I was going to apply psychology. Um, and I was so excited. I, I wound up getting hired by Ogilvy & Mather, huge advertising agency in New York City. Um, it was my dream job in so many ways, but I wound up being in the account management department, which means it was like a lot of just like talking to people and a lot less doing anything. Um, and so what I discovered there was that the, there was this one department I kept gravitating towards, which was the market research department where they actually, you know, research market trends and see what people respond to and run focus groups and things like that. And I, I talked to someone about like, how do you get there? And right. everyone there had a PhD. And so okay. I kind of had that in the back of my mind, decided I just didn't like corporate America that much wound up, um, doing a few other things. I worked in a sleep lab. I worked uh, in elder care, other way, like ways of just testing out different psychology adjacent fields. And then eventually went back to get my PhD. Um, thought I would eventually go back to advertising with that PhD because I just still had that idea in my head, but I just fell in love with teaching and research for the sake of research, you know, just like I could do this every day and publish and I love to write. And so I just kept taking kind of the next step to stay in academia and kept getting lucky. And so wound up here. I was, I was wondering whether it was the fact that in social psychology, you get to do experiments where you have to put someone in a t-shirt with Barry Manilow on or get experiments that, that ask people how much it would cost them to, to be bribed to dance in front of people. There's some quite cool, cool little aspects to, to the work, isn't there really? There are, you know, and but those are two of my favorite experiments in the whole wide world. And they're exactly the kind of thing that makes social psychology kind of fun and creative. Um, but they also, both of those findings. So interestingly, they were done by, one of them was by Tom Gilovich, the other one, the lead author is uh, Leif Van Boven. Both of them did it uh, at Cornell. They were both, Leif was a PhD student here. Tom Gilovich is one of my colleagues here. Um, so there is this kind of like this university has this like kind of creative background of social psychology experiments, um, which also kind of drew me to it makes me excited to be here. Um, but those are not just fun. So like, as you said, in those studies, you know, people have to wear an embarrassing t-shirt and walk in front of people and see if people notice them. Right. So there was Barry Manilow t-shirt in one of the studies and the other study, they have to get up in front of a stage 
um, and dance in front of people to uh, Super Freak um, and <laughs> <laughs> in front of like all their their friends, basically like hundreds of people in this auditorium. So you would think like, oh my God, psychologists just make people do these wacky things for their own amusement. But both of those are classic studies because they actually reveal some fundamental aspects of human psychology. So both of them are sort of revealing this tendency we have to misperceive how others are perceiving us, right? So the Barry Manilow t-shirt, people think that everyone's noticing this embarrassing t-shirt, everyone's sort of, you know, whispering and gossiping about them. You know, this idea that we have that, oh my God, everyone can see that I'm having a bad hair day, when in fact, hardly anyone noticed this embarrassing thing. Yeah. Um, and then the, the dancing one, just is illustrates that we think that everybody else would be happy to get up on stage um when in fact most people are nervous about that just as nervous as us and so that illustrates this thing called the illusion of courage that we we have this illusion that everybody else is more courageous than us and so they're not just silly they're like also really i think really really fascinating phenomena that they illustrate so well qu quickly the dancing study i think it was 50 dollars or something that people would say that that's how much i need um, but but everyone else is going to probably just just go for it for about twenty dollars. I think it was. I read that and thought I would probably put a lot more than fifty dollars down <laughs> if I'm going for it. I might as well actually get something back. But so that was fascinating. But but the start of the book then that was really interesting for me about the this this change in our perception of how people notice us or what they might be judging, what they might be thinking, how we might be being assessed. So the Barry Manilow t-shirt under one condition that you put this garish t-shirt on and you think that people are going to notice you, whereas um, perhaps you underestimate just your influence on the crowd. If you're just if you're if you're just going about your your day to day work. Um, so the difference being there that you emphasized was when you are self-conscious, when you are self-conscious, you are anticipating that other people will be thinking about you differently they'll think that you're that they're going to be judging you why do you think that might be the case then yeah it's interesting because as you said you know there's this other work and it's referred to as the invisibility cloak illusion that we think actually that no one's sort of noticing us and we're kind of invisible to other people um, when in fact other people do notice us more than we realize but when we are have something that we're acutely self-conscious about like this Barry Manilow t-shirt or a bad hair day or whatever it might be, some faux pas, you know, um, we think more people are noticing us than actually are. And so the idea is that basically, as we go through life, you know, our ordinary day to day, we're just not super focused on ourselves. We're kind of looking at everybody else and, you know, noticing what everybody else is doing and kind of assuming nobody's really looking at us. And part of that is all these social behaviors that people engage in where they try not to look like they're staring at you, you know? So, you know, if you look at someone and catch their eye, they quickly look away. And so for the most part, you're missing those people sort of noticing you. And so we think like, okay, no one's really noticing me around until we have something that we're really worried people are noticing. And then we're like, oh my God, everybody's looking at me, right? And so there, Erica Boothby, who's the researcher who did this invisibility cloak illusion study or, um, this uh, set of studies kind of teased this out and she had people come into the lab and just wear their ordinary t-shirt or she had them wear an embarrassing t-shirt like Tom Gilovich had done with this Barry Manilow t-shirt 
And she asked them, how much is this, uh, did this other person who we had to interact with notice your t-shirt or what you were wearing? And if they were just wearing their ordinary clothes, they thought that the person noticed what they were wearing less than they actually did. If they were wearing something embarrassing, they thought they noticed it more than they actually did. So we tend to sort of overestimate how harshly other people are judging us, right? And underestimate how much they just notice us on the regular. And so you can imagine like, you know, I know it'd be ideal to sort of put this in a sports context. So I'm imagining a situation where like, you know, you're just practicing and you're kind of in the zone doing your own thing and not thinking anybody's really paying attention to you. And then you make some terrible mistake. And then you look around and think like, oh my God, everybody just saw that. And you think that the thing that people remember are the mistake you made. You think, you know, that is the thing everyone suddenly paid attention to, but they were noticing you the whole time, you know? Yeah. When I, when I was reading that, I, I was thinking about this sort of heightened sense of self-awareness that athletes often have when it gets closer and closer to a competition. And it, it was, it was piquing my interest of thinking of what, what that phenomenon might be where obviously you're thinking about the crowds obviously you're thinking about perhaps the media pressure or hoping you want to do well hoping you don't want to mess up but but also internally that that often athletes will report that they they feel as though they're, they're assessing and reevaluating that niggle from last year how do i actually feel um I'm, I'm feeling nervous and what's that making me also feel and so there's a sense of that's that surveying and assessing how they're going sort of what it made me recognize or or connect with that the influence of other people or that goal or that that intensity is changing the way i'm thinking about myself yeah that's really interesting i could definitely see that being the case you know when when the spotlight's not on you when you're not gearing up for anything when it's not like a media circus around you or whatever might be going on you know you kind of just feel almost invisible to some extent like you're out of the spotlight and no one's really paying attention but people are still noticing you and then when things start to hype up it's like it just all becomes super intense and then you think everyone's scrutinizing you and judging you so much for every little thing and it's probably less so than you actually think is the case um so it's kind of just balancing out those two um, kind of biases. Yeah, and so that invisibility cloak was an interesting dynamic that you explored both as as a member of the audience or as a member of of a team or a boardroom or that meeting environment. When some sometimes people go into those just thinking there's not much point with being here or there's 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 little influence that I'm actually having on the outcome of a meeting. And I mean, you give a couple of different examples, one, one of which that really resonates to me about the sort of dynamics in the room that you must make sure you're picking up on in order for you to be influential. I certainly try and do that when I go and do talks, for example, I'll be like, right, what have you just done? You know, have you just done auditing and finance stuff? And now I'm going to come in and try and try and uh, share some insights with you. Or um, has the, you know, has there been some um, some redundancies or is that, are you under financial threat as a business? I've got to tune into that. But what was really interesting was that, that dynamic of, of just thinking how influential you might be, even though you might not speak, even though you might not necessarily be the one who's making a decision. That's such a interesting term. What was it? Audience tuning? Was that what you'd Mm -hmm. called it? Yeah. I, I think this is such a powerful concept. Um, because in part, I think 
we have a misconception about what influence means. And we think if you ask who was influenced in a room, people assume it's that person standing in the front of the room, you know, with the microphone on the podium, on the stage, with the PowerPoints, whatever it is, you know, the person doing the most talking. And we tend to forget that everybody else in that room also is influencing one another and the speaker. So anyone who's been in that position, you know, at the front of the room, as you know, you have, and I do when I teach all the time or when I give talks, you are monitoring that room for every cue that you can find mm. that suggests like people are, you know, getting it or agreeing with it. You know, you're looking for nods. You're noticing when people look bored um, and you really care. Like, you're up there, you care what these people think, you know, you want to do a good job. And so we engage in, as you mentioned, audience tuning, where we tune our message to try to capture the interest um, and the sort of position of our audience. So sometimes that could be, I know that, you know, you have this political stance. And so I tone down how I speak to you a little bit, you know, um, or I know what you're dealing with in your organization. So I make sure that I uh, address those kinds of things. Or I just see that, you know, this example, you, you seem to be tuning out. And so I come up with another example and try that out. And what's interesting about audience tuning is the speaker is actually changing what they're saying and what they're doing based on the audience who's not saying a thing often, who's just sitting there, or the speaker's just kind of presuming what the audience is thinking because they have an idea of what the audience might be thinking. Um, and so they're changing what they're saying. And interestingly, that means the audience is affecting the messages that they're receiving right from the speaker. And there's a sort of secondary effect called the saying is believing effect, which is that once you say something and it looks like someone's like agreed with that. So you see you say something and the audience is kind of nodding. You start to believe that a little bit more. So I've said it, you know, it seems like that went over well, you know, that must be the right thing. And so simply by nodding along in the audience, simply by being there, you can actually change the speaker's views because they're adopting a certain message to please you. Once they do, they're like, okay, that seems like a, the right good message. So now I believe it a little bit more. Um, and one of the things that that, you know, it has importance in all sorts of different uh, ways. But one thing I like to talk about is the importance of diversity in a team or in a room, right? So if I am, you know, in a very simple sort of form, if I'm addressing a group full of men and I'm talking about like HR practices or whatever it might be, you know, it just might not be top of mind to talk about like parental leave or something like that. Now I have a room full of, you know, is just a few women in that room. And all of a sudden that same conversation might just, you know, take on a different sort of, um, it might go in a different direction because I'm noticing that my audience is a little more diverse, a little different. So I'm going to bring up things I might not have thought to bring up before. And now we're all having a discussion about a slightly different kind of topic than if the room had looked different. So it has all sorts of applications. Mm. I can certainly relate to that. Having done talks at say, uh, I remember one with uh, my colleagues at One Dance UK. So they've just done uh, an uplifting dance session together, 150 people. And I, I stand up and talk and they're, they're already in it. They're already super excited. And I just get carried away. I'm, I'm, I'm in this too. And they're finding stuff funny that's not supposed to be funny. I'm like, right, let's go. And it, it, it kind of emboldens you, it enlivens you, but equally, uh, I remember doing a talk 
uh, at, a, at a company who just had terrible financial results. Lots of people were redundant. And I've been brought in to try and G people up and just dead. Everyone's just, no. And so actually it's just, right, I'm just going to play this fairly straight and kept it flat. And that also makes you think of how we've been engaging with each other during the pandemic over Zoom cameras off sometimes or you might be doing a talk to a group of people one person's nodding you sort of just fixate on that one person mm -hmm. um these some these small body language cues that that we could all give off that i suppose we underplay or we don't recognize that that, that important but you could be encouraging somebody in the right direction or perhaps the direction you want to just by the way your eyes are shining it's true you know it is funny how it's on zoom you really do fixate just by virtue of the app right and whoever's at the top there or whoever has their cameras on so if you're one of the like small number of people who often have their camera on you are impacting the speaker so much and you probably don't even realize it because you're kind of like not just not as attuned to like how spotlighted you are for the speaker specifically yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, and there's so much research now coming out comparing our in-person interactions to interactions over Zoom or even the phone or email and things like that. Um, we even have some research showing that asking for things. So this is one of the areas of influence that I study is, you know, asking for things and how likely people are to agree to do things for you. And again, whether we know the best way to ask for things to get that yes that many of us want. And what we find is that asking in person is so much more effective, just ridiculously more effective than asking over email. It's 34 times more effective in one of our studies. So just completely, you know, uh, blows email away. But even over Zoom or the phone, uh, there is something about being present in a room with another person that creates a certain amount of trust and um, they just kind of naturally give you more attention. And there's just something more um there's a, a theory called media naturalness theory that basically the more you kind of interact in a way that mimics natural uh interactions which means like in-person evolutionarily defined sort of interactions the more influential you'll be um and the more trust and uh rapport is sort of developed and so yeah we we i think we often don't realize because in those studies as well when we ask people how should you ask basically does it matter if you ask over zoom or in person people think it's going to be the same but it's wildly more effective in person and so we don't realize kind of all the things we lose when we do interact either just through mediated communication or with cameras off or whatever it might be mm, that that's so interesting certainly for a lot of people who are looking for opportunities certainly in the world of sports performance where they are quite rare and actually it's quite it's quite guarded and secured off we, we don't want anyone just just bowling in we're going to really filter who's going to be in the inner circle working with, with athletes um, to find those opportunities often people just email i'll just email the top club and oh, if i haven't heard back oh well that's that's it when actually maybe making the journey knocking on doors, uh, it's going to make so much more difference by what you said. It, um, it also alludes to the f this probably the dynamic that we're facing at the moment about whether we should be working at home, whether we should be returning to the office, whether you know, actually our influence genuinely is going to be more effective 
when we're interacting with people face to face. Yeah. And, you know, there are so many positives about this kind of shift to more virtual and more hybrid opportunities. So there's always a trade-off, right? Because it, it allows certain groups of people to be more, to participate more kind of in the workplace, you know, mm -hmm. especially women and underrepresented minorities and people, um, you know, who can't come in as much or it's more difficult to come in. But at the same time, so much does get lost, we're seeing as the research is coming in, comparing, you know, Zoom to in-person in particular, because like Zoom has felt so much like, oh, we could just keep doing business as usual. Um, and so, you know, in our research, it, it seems like you have some less influence over Zoom, or at least we haven't sort of figured, you, you need to work harder, I'd say, to have the same influence you would have in person. So. Whereas in person, you can ask something in this clunky kind of, you know, just totally inarticulate way and people still feel like it's hard to say no. Over Zoom, you may need to actually be more articulate and really think through what you want to say and ask in a very careful way, you know, so there is an adjustment, I think. Um, there's also some new research that just came out showing that people are actually less creative when they work together. Uh, over Zoom as opposed to in person. And so we're also potentially losing some elements of creativity and influence. And um, there are all sorts of things that, you know, we're starting to realize we need to at least make up for in some way if we're not going to actually be in person. Yes. And that that last phrase really, to me, sums up a lot of what we've lost. You have to, you have to be more intentional about some of these things that what the body language signals that you might pick up as people are coming into to a meeting or an environment for, the, for that that day, you're probably going to lose a lot of those when it's down the screen, down the down the lens, and you're sort of half presenting yourself. I don't know. I, I assume, or you've got your cameras off and you haven't got those those uh, those body language cues that you could pick up. And so I'm I'm encouraging a lot of people to be asking them asking how how are you how are you feeling before we think about working through our agenda yeah i think that's huge is actually making that social connection because that is one thing that's lost i don't know if you've noticed this but definitely here you know zoom meetings everyone gets there exactly at the you know start of the meeting whereas they would filter in and there'd be a lot of chit chat at the beginning of an in-person yeah. meeting so you had more of that interaction and you know that natural interaction in the hallway and things like that um, another thing that in addition to this sort of like social connection, right, is that we also lose people's opinions and discussions because it's so easy to just check out. Um, one of my colleagues talks about the sort of the unmute button being like this major barrier, like, are you actually going to click the unmute button um, and kind of say your piece and it's it's just it's so much bigger of a deal to sort of jump in and occupy the spotlight on Zoom as opposed to maybe if you were like in a meeting all together and you can kind of just jump in and people could talk over each other without making it impossible to understand or hear. And so in addition to going around asking how everyone's doing, you know, if there is a discussion going around and saying, okay, everyone is going to just give their quick little spiel about how they feel about this. Right. As opposed to letting whoever wants to unmute and feels comfortable enough to unmute, you know, just jump in. Mm. That's sort of um, that boiling up. I'm going I'm going to speak. And and when you're in a room, you can hear someone go. Yeah, exactly. I, 
I've got, and they don't do that. Obviously, they have to they have to reach for the mouse and click and look for the that yeah. signal, and then you're looking in the the participants list for someone who's unmuted, and you then volunteer yeah. them in, and yeah, okay, wow. It's the unmute now is like the because you see the unmute and then the mute back and then the unmute. <laughs> Um, look, look, I'm going to quote part of your book back to you. So you have more influence than you think. Page 46. Um, in truth, facts are less effective at changing people's behaviors and beliefs than social norms or knowing what other people believe and are doing. That's quite a powerful statement. Um, certainly from, from maybe, maybe this is me being stereotyping to the world of science where you lead with facts and you lead with knowledge but but it's it's worth recognizing just how powerful the situation the environment the the people that you're working with the blend of of the dynamics within a team rather than whether something's known to a level of probability could you just unpack that that statement a little bit for more for me yeah, and it is interesting because so many people think that facts are the way to convince someone. You know, if I just kind of put out all the facts and I make my case really clear and logical, you know, I, I, I'll convince you. Um, and one way that we do that, so um, Robert Cialdini, who is like one of the godfathers of influence, talks about the difference between two types of norms. One are prescriptive norms. It's like what you should do. Um, and so it could be something like, you know, you should recycle um, or you should exercise, you know, X amount. And then there are descriptive norms and that those are what everybody else are, is actually doing. And the most important people to you are usually people like you. And so what's interesting is even if the prescriptive norm is like, I should exercise, there's all this data showing all the reasons I should exercise. And you have convinced me laying out all this data that like clearly that is the thing I should do, right? But if I look around and no one I hang out with exercises, uh, I am so much less likely to do that just because the social norm is not to exercise. But then if I look around and most of the people I know exercise, all of a sudden now that becomes normal to me and I start doing that. Um, you know, the recycling example is really, he, he, Cialdini has some studies on like where you recycle or you hang up towels um, and you do these kinds of things that are more immediate, like exercise is more kind of a long-term thing. But um, if like a sign says, uh, you know, recycle, but then you see that everyone is just throwing the recycling like wherever they want people are less likely to actually recycle than if they see that, oh, and everyone is actually following that sign. Because if you think about it, if there's something hard or ambiguous and you're not, you know, you're kind of like, I know I should do that, but there are all these kinds of barriers to me doing that. We look around and see like, well, how are other people prioritizing? What are other people doing? And then we use other people's behavior as sort of our model for what we think and believe and, and eventually do. Hmm. And you gave a couple of um, nice examples of what I would call a shouty intervention versus encouraging, supportive intervention. I can't remember the exact words, but people were emailed, you should do sit-ups, it's good for your core, do it now, versus uh, something like, um, I'm, and I'm changing my tone now to fit the, the character, but, um, <laughs> but they're good for you, um, you can do it. That, that was the sort of uh, tone and you found a difference 
in response based on if somebody doesn't want to do those sit-ups the shouty one was actually reduced the the interest is that right and then shouty and encouraging was basically neutral if people were indifferent but if people were bought in and actually wanted to do exercise the the sort of the more assertive instruction actually actually did help yeah this was interesting because um this research there are several different studies looking at different parts of this and so one of the questions was like what do people think will get people to do what you want them to do like say i want you to eat healthier say i want you to exercise you know people in general think that the shoutier assertive thing is always going to be better right so they're not sort of calibrating based on the other person and kind of meeting that other person where they are they're just thinking like i am frustrated you need to eat better i'm going to be very assertive and tell you this is why you need to do this right like i'm definitely just do it um but in fact as you said you know the shoutier message only works for people who basically are already bought in and they just kind of need that coaching it's like you know i just need someone to to yell at me and tell me to do it because i'm kind of already convinced that this is what i i want to do but if you most cases we're trying to convince someone who you know is resistant and has been resistant for a while and if we're kind of shouting at them to do something that they are resistant to do they turn off right and that is actually less effective than something that's like you know well look you know here's one suggestion for something you could try and that softer approach we often feel is ineffective this is one of the the kind of aspects of underestimating our influence is we think influence is shouty we think influence is um you know we want to see that effect right there we want we're we're not patient with influence we think subtle is not influential but these more kind of gentle subtle requests um and letting them sink in you know being patient and hoping that you know tomorrow that person might still be thinking about that thing you said and maybe you can remind them or have somebody else remind them um there's a lot of long game and influence that people overlook because they want that short term kind of like you know i told you to get down on the ground and do 10 sit-ups and you did it and so i influenced you you know as opposed to like i suggested that maybe you should try to start doing incorporating this into your routine and you know maybe i'll revisit that in a couple of days and eventually it'll sink in so there's a couple of dynamics there that are emerging for me one is um so how much someone's bought in and so whether they're actually resistant or they've they've actually not um they're, they're repelling the, the concept what about are any advice for um some of those coaches out there that might be working with someone who's talented but perhaps low diligence where from a psychological point of view maybe that's low conscientiousness when there's a oh you've got potential you could you know you could achieve great things but you're very laid back you can't be bothered <laughs> so i'm just wondering if there's any any specifics around that particular dynamic when it might not be about buy-in or not they just don't really kind of care yeah i mean i'd say there's there's a lot of research on kind of the things that make people slip up when they want to do something like they want to change katie milkman has um a, a book that came out recently how to change and she addresses a lot of these kinds of questions about like you know i know i could be great at this i really care but i just 
don't get my act together on a daily basis, right? And so there are several things you kind of have to figure out what it is that's causing that and then address that. So sometimes it's an attention problem, right? I just keep forgetting. And so you find ways to keep whatever it is that person needs to do top of mind, right? And you make it, you know, sort of unforgettable. Um, you know, sometimes it's a motivation thing and you, you work out some sort of reward system, whether it's like pairing something that they like to do. So they kind of want to do that thing with something that they really hate. So she calls this temptation bundling, where you take something um, that you really like, you know, okay, and that's tempting. And I, I keep doing that instead of the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And you somehow either let them do that while they're doing the thing they're supposed to do, or, you know, as a reward after. Um, and so I'd say it really comes down. There's not like a universal, like, and this is how you get someone to stay on track. It's like, first is identifying the barriers, then is addressing the specific barrier. But again, I think that's more of like, a, it's more patient and long-term. And we often resort to shouty, like, come on, you know, I'm going to tell you again, why this is important and all the things you could be, as opposed to kind of more mundane, like logistical things, like, let's actually track your day and see what it is that's that's causing you to slip up you had you had quite a theme of anticipating how your request might be received whether it's asking whether it was anticipating how someone was perceiving um and it always felt like you were making the case for people to be a bit kinder to themselves and and actually backing themselves give it a go um rather anticipating that at level, as you called it, embarrassment, when actually it's not that embarrassing, you know, if they just said no, it just perhaps wasn't right for them, that that sense of of qu quitting or not doing something because you've talked yourself out of it before you've actually tried. Um, what's, what's going on there in our minds? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's a huge theme in this in the book is this idea that we anticipate so much more negativity coming from other people than we often experience if we actually test out those kind of intuitions or those worries. And so that's true in so many uh, different sort of examples in the book. So one, I mean, we have studies where we have people go out and give people compliments, right? And what could be, you know, nicer than getting a compliment and yet our participants worry that they're going to be annoying the person or bothering the person going up and giving them a compliment. Um, you know, our participants or participants in some of my colleague studies uh, think that people are rehashing conversations that they had and kind of nitpicking every little thing they said and that they didn't like the conversation as much and they caught like every inarticulate moment. Um, and then in our studies, as you mentioned, you know, people expect rejection and they think if I ask for something, people are going to say no and be annoyed that I'm asking. And so because of that, we you know we hold back and we don't ask. Um, or we negotiate ourselves down before we actually go and ask, because we think like, why would this person, this person would never say yes to this. So I'm going to ask for this lesser thing before even asking for that bigger thing. Um, and I think there's kind of a, a couple of broad psychological phenomena that underlie all of that. And I'd say the two biggest things are negativity bias. Um, which I'm sure, you know, it that pervades all sorts of areas of life. And so I'm sure you've encountered this plenty before, but the idea that the negative looms larger than the positive, right? And so even if most people say yes to us, 
we remember that one person who said no and kind of extrapolate it and feel like, oh, everyone says no to me, right? When in fact, if you looked at the data, you know, most people are actually saying yes. And so, you know, or we might, you know, remember that one faux pas and that's the only thing we can remember and not like the 10 really lovely articulate things we said in that same like speech or conversation or whatever it might be. And so we are really harsh on ourselves because we focus on the negative. Um, and then the second big thing that pervades all those is something we call egocentrism. And that is the inability for us to really get inside the heads of another person and sort of understand how they are viewing us. We tend to be trapped in our own heads. And so if we are sort of nitpicking every little thing we've said and we know everything we should have said and we didn't say, we know how anxious we were and how all the things we were worried about, we kind of assume that someone else is seeing all that too. Uh, but our assumptions about what other people are thinking are often wrong. And so even if you do these simple sorts of um, uh, activities or uh, visualization exercises where you imagine asking someone for help, for example, and you put yourself in that position and you think of all the anxiety that goes along with that and how awkward it's going to be and you know all those negative feelings. And then you have someone totally switch perspectives and imagine someone's coming up to you and asking you for help, right? It's, it's a whole different experience. It's like, oh yeah, I'd be happy to help that person in that situation. I would feel good about myself. You know, I would feel like I did something nice and feel kind of honored that this person would ask me for my advice or something. Um, and so we forget when we're in the one position, what it's like to be in that other position. And is that, is that what you would suggest people do? flip flip it around before they actually go and ask for help to to put themselves in other people's shoes and how it would receive be received by them yeah i think um that is a huge sort of suggestion is to find ways to both get out of your own head um and that could be by sort of taking like a neutral party uh sort of perspective if you're imagining like you know, uh, I feel like I just sounded like an idiot in that conversation. Imagine a neutral party kind of watching that conversation, seeing what both people said. What would that person think? Probably not whatever you're thinking, right? And then also getting into the other person's head, which is really hard for us to do. But I think, especially when it's something like helping that all of us have done at some point in our lives, you know, trying to recall a time that we were asked for help and we're happy to help the other person is I think a really helpful thing to remind ourselves of that, you know, actually um, when you're on, on that other side, it just, it doesn't feel like all these things you're worried that person is gonna feel. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, that that certainly resonates for me working for myself in that you feel awkward saying, would you like me to do some work for you? You sort of anticipate that that level of rejection, but um, but to a certain extent when someone asks me, you know, can I do some work for you? It's fine. Yes or no, it's fine. You know, you're going to consider it appropriately, aren't you? But you, you mentioned there about that sort of priming, how you go into situations. And there was some really interesting stuff that you uh, surfaced around power. So I was fascinated by this. Um, and you mentioned a series of studies about priming your thoughts about a power-based relationship. So if I'm summarizing this correctly, please, please, um, please nitpick away if, if I haven't quite got this right, Vanessa, is so 
um, participants were asked to recall a situation where they had power over somebody else, whether that was teaching or instructing or whatever it might be, maybe a parent situation, or that that they had received that that power based relationship. They they were the receipt of it. Um, where they, they were asked to recall the situation and then given a subsequent task and all sorts of quite unusual uh, behaviors sort of seems seem to to come out um so so i remember one that you referred to where people were considering other people's perspectives differently so they were drawing an e on their forehead was that right <laughs> And they were less inclined to think about presenting it so it was suitable for someone else's perspective versus them, themselves. So if they had high power situations, so they're thinking about being dominated, if you like, they were more inclined to just think about themselves. Whereas if they were asked about mentoring scenario, then, um, then they were more inclined to think about other people's perspectives. That's fascinating as a concept. Yeah. And that, you know, so there's so many studies about the effects of power and being in a position of power and feeling powerful uh, on how we interact with other people and the environment that suggests that, you know, you might think like, well, people in positions of power, like coaches, I have some examples of like coaches and teachers and professors, you know, people in positions of power, they must realize they have all this influence, right? But in fact, these studies suggest that actually there are certain sort of biases that come out when you are in a position of power that make you less likely in some cases to recognize the influence that you have in other people. And so one of them, as you're mentioning, is that when we are in a position of power, we're less likely to take other people's perspectives. And if you think about that, that just makes sense, right? If I'm the one in power and I say something, I'm not going to fret about how you took that thing I just said and kind of go over in my head a million times, you know, what you thought of me in that meeting, because I'm the one in power. I just, it's not as important for me to make sure that you like me as it is for you to make sure that I like you. Um, and so one of the ways that they've tested this experimentally is through this experiment where they give people these power primes and, you know, they, they're, these writing primes where you're kind of writing about a time you either were in a position of power or a position where someone had power over you, but they really, um, people get into them, right? So they actually do really evoke this, like you get back into that moment. And so you really feel a little bit more or a little bit less powerful when you do these primes. Um, and then they had them, and this was a tiny study. And so there've been other studies, but this one is particularly kind of, um, memorable right in terms of the way that they they looked at perspective taking this study and they had them write an e really quickly they just said okay we're doing like this um this task to look at you know uh i forget what it was something random that was unrelated to perspective taking so they they weren't thinking about perspective taking just write in the letter e on your head um and they would write a capital e and they looked at how often the e was visible readable sort of by the other person as an E or backwards, as if it was written, you know, towards me. And the people in the high power prime, the people who felt more powerful were less likely to write the E where they were considering someone else's perspective. Oh, this person's gonna have to read this E, right? Um, and so if we are less likely to perspective take when we're in positions of power, that means that when we say things, when we ask for things, uh, we are less likely 
two, try to consider how those things impact other people. And so we might miss some of the times we say something that really rubs someone the wrong way, or we ask someone to do something that they feel obligated to do, not just happy to do, and they feel like they can't say no to us. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of power is that it also makes us more what people say action oriented or also um, we care less about like the situational constraints like i'm not going to worry about what other people think in this situation i'm just going to act i'm just going to deal with it and so in another study they primed power again and then they had this annoying fan blowing on participants and it was unclear it was very ambiguous whether you could move the fan or not whether it was part of the experiment it was just kind of this annoying fan and if you were primed with power you were more likely to just get up and turn the fan off or get up and move the fan um, and again, because you just didn't, you weren't worried that maybe you weren't supposed to, you just dealt with it. And so the part that applies to influence is that we often think if I would just deal with this, right, why doesn't somebody else just deal with it and forget that when you're in a lower position of power, you feel like you have to be more careful. You can't just act and assume you were allowed to do something, you know, um, and so again, it makes us sort of miss times when we're like why didn't you just tell me you didn't want to do that you were uncomfortable with that um because that lower power person may not have felt comfortable saying something mm. and there was another study that you mentioned about almost 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 the opposite or not the the counter when the high power prime actually led to greater creativity or less conformity um and and so this has sort of got me thinking just about there are situations where the position of power, so you might hold a leadership role over subordinates in a hierarchical situation. And so they, this might play out. But is this an applied technique that people could use when there's a certain capability required in a certain situation that we need to innovate, we need to be thinking differently, or we need to be more empathic about how we consider each other's views if it's a very high challenge situation and actually what the team needs is level of support is this a technique that you could almost use to to evoke an appropriate behavior that's a good question i'm not sure if anyone's looked at that it's certainly possible you're right so in another study you know priming power made people come up with a, a more original uh, idea because they weren't following along with the group where low power people are kind of like, okay, if everybody else did that, I'll just do that too. Um, maybe, I don't know that, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, if you want people to feel that way, is that the best way to get there? Or is there another better sort of way to get there? And I'm not really sure. Um, and it's, it's as with everything, you know, there are these trade-offs. So that study is actually very comparable to the the fan study where it was like i'm not going to worry about the norms here I, it's ambiguous what what the task is asking me for i'm just going to do what i want and come up with the idea i want or move the fan the way i want it's just i'm not going to consider everybody else in this moment um but that said power is not inherently um sort of tied to a lack of empathy and perspective taking because there are people in positions of power who actually sometimes are better perspective takers, but it's because with their power, they also couple power with the sense of responsibility. So power always comes with opportunity and responsibility, right? Like you can 
move your organization in a new direction that you see and use your vision and kind of, um, you know, also there's all sorts of personal opportunities, but also now you're in charge of a bunch of people and their future and you have to decide how resources are allocated and there's a lot of responsibility. And there's some people who actually sort of couple that responsibility part with the power more so than other people. And those people actually are greater perspective takers when they're in positions of power because they're super aware. Like when I say this, like it means a lot. My, you know, one expression one of my colleagues likes to use is when you're in a position of power, your whisper sounds like a shout. And a lot of people don't realize that but there is a subset of people who are acutely aware of that and the responsibility that comes with their power. So I say that just because it's not power itself necessarily, it's a lot of the attributes uh, associated with power. So we can make power more empathetic if we kind of couple it with that responsibility element. Mm, yeah, that was a great quote, I love that one. What was it again? So it was uh, power's whisper feels like a shout. Yeah, when you're in, when you're in a position of power, your whisper sounds like a shout. Yeah, and that, that really speaks to just an offhand glib comment. When you're in a position of leadership, you have to self-manage. You have to be very careful that you don't spook the horses, but equally, you've got to be active as a communicator. Um, you know, it's sort of that Vince Lombardi quote of the achievements of an organization, the results of the combined effort of each individual. So we're all in this. We've got to take each other's perspectives. But was it the John Lydgate quote? You can't please all the some of the you can please some of the people all the time. You can't please all the people all the time, etc. You've got to hold those two together, haven't you? In that in that sense of pushing on and making decisions that not everyone's going to be happy about, uh, being connected with a group and being considerate of those perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know all that comes with power. Um, there are trade-offs with everything. There's trade-offs with low power. There's trade-offs with high power. Uh, and I think the key is really that awareness. You know, it's that it's so easy to forget that your whisper sounds like a shout to other people. And so this is where we get into like, you know, if you're, you know, leading a, a discussion and you're the person in power, if you go first, no one's going to disagree with you, right? Like you just basically right. came up with the answer and. <clears throat> it's going to be very hard or that much harder for people to come up with like a counter example. And so, you know, the just really simple things that we often forget. So we like, we often rise through the ranks, reach a position of power and then feel like we need to prove why we're there. And so we feel like we have to come up with the good ideas and prove we deserve this position. So we should talk a lot and explain, you know, I think that's the impulse is to justify that I deserve to be here. I deserve to be in this position. When in fact, when you get in that position, it's a lot more important to hold back and listen to everybody else's perspectives because you're already in that position. They're, you know, kind of already, it's, it's a done deal. You know, there is a certain element of, you know, winning people over, winning their respect, but that mm. comes more from the listening piece than from the talking piece. And we forget that. Yeah. There's so many athletes, coaches, leaders that I've spoken to who've said, Oh, I, I wish I'd just been myself. Um, in that initial taking on the international stage or uh, that leadership, that head coach position for the first time. I just wish I'd been myself. I was pretending to be somebody I wasn't really. Um, and I don't know whether 
actually going through that period of time of awkwardness of I'm being somebody I'm not has actually made them then flip and reflect and truer to themselves a bit like the athlete who who overtrains and gets injured and then learns about regulating their training they've got to make the mistakes for them to really deeply uh, resonate so yeah I, 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 I like that principle I'm not quite sure <laughs> whether it's actually a healthy thing for them to experience and go through yeah I mean and I think there's the my favorite sort of thing about imposter syndrome is that yeah. we feel like imposters when we're actually rising in the ranks when we're doing the one the better we're doing the more we feel like imposters and so I think part of that is that, you know, you wind up in this position, you're like, do I deserve this? Like, I'm, I'm just a kid. I still, you know, and you feel kind of like an imposter. And so I think you try these things on because you don't feel like you should just be yourself because you're not sure you really belong there. And then eventually you settle in and realize I do belong here. I can be myself, you know, and sort of reconcile that. Yeah. Amazing. So many fascinating insights. You mentioned a couple, um, a quite, quite candid, quite unethical scenarios, such as uh, coaches uh, asking players to to perform certain acts, such as taking clothes off as punishment for missing free throws and so on. You've talked about um, consensual relationships in inverted commas, very deliberately um, between CEOs and and staffers. Um, I'm curious to know and 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 thoughtful of scenarios in situations where in sports where there's been abuse cases there's been situations that have gone from innocent to questionable to unethical to wrong and um any thoughts about how people can be stronger more confident uh, in tr in speaking up and speaking truth to to power uh in a whistleblowing scenario yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, a lot of the, so I guess to sort of put it into perspective, I guess the first half of the book is very much about you have more influence than you think, you can get help more readily than you think, your voice is more, um, people are, you know, will listen to you more than you think. And so it's a very kind of positive, more traditional, uh, I'd say like self-helpy leadership type book. The second half is basically, if you do have more influence than you think, and if people in power might have even more influence than they think, you know, what does that mean? There's a responsibility that comes there and we can accidentally inadvertently misuse it at times. Yeah. Um, sometimes in these cases, it's not inadvertent. And yet there are these quotes, you know, of, as you mentioned, the, um, the coach, the basketball coach who had his players uh, doing strip basically basketball. And each time they missed a free throw, they had to take off an article of clothing to the point where they're doing wind sprints up and down the court, totally naked. Right. He was like, they could have said no. Right. They, mm. it, it's a case where they could have said no. Um, and of course the players are like, this is my coach. I am in a, you know, division one basketball team. I couldn't say no to my coach. Right. And so I think on the one hand, I think Me Too and a lot of the stories we've seen come out over the past few years has definitely been empowering to people who are being abused um, to step forward. At the same time, I always worry about putting the onus on the person who's in the position of being abused to be the one who steps up because they are the low power person, right? They have so much to risk right. um, and they often won't. And so, I actually think that 
for one, I mean, in cases where it's inadvertent, like genuinely inadvertent, I think people in positions of power, like coaches, doctors, who have trainers, like whoever is in charge of a team or athletes, you know, needs to, they, we all need to be more aware of the influence we have in those positions um, and the ways in which, you know, players may not push back. Athletes may not push back. They may just take our word as gospel in a lot of cases, you know, and worry about questioning things. And so we want to be more aware of that to avoid inadvertent, you know, abuses of power. And then for cases where it's, you know, blatant and there's actual abuses of power that are deliberate, then I actually think um, bystander interventions are the most useful thing because once you get outsiders recognizing problematic dynamics and standing up and saying something, then often victims will come up and say something um, because other people, they could tell other people have their back, but also it doesn't put the onus on the victim to do it, right? So if other people know the cues that they're looking for, um, whether it's other players, other, you know, members of the coaching staff, whoever it is, can actually speak up and say, you know, I saw something weird, maybe we should investigate this, or I saw something that was concerning to me, um, and do some of that, you know, make some of that effort so the onus isn't on the, the victim or the player. I think that's, that's a particularly useful way of handling those kinds of situations. So am I hearing things like some outside audit, a critical review, you know, a, a board that might, that might be able to check and challenge practice? Is that what you're suggesting there? That's, there's an outside voice that recognizes uh, the dynamics that are in a, an environment? I think if, you know, there's some advantages to outside voices, but I think actually the people who usually know what's going on are more internal. Okay. It's just not the person who's directly harmed potentially. And so if it is someone who's on the coaching staff, it makes it that much harder, right? Uh, because they're involved and they also have something to lose. Um, but if everyone's sort of aware and there are trainings actually for um, bystander interventions, to kind of deal with all the dynamics that all the pressures of not speaking up when you see something, you know, the, if you see something, say something kind of thing, um, because it is hard, but outside organizations often aren't going to see, you know, they, people won't necessarily trust them to tell them what's really going on. So I think that's part of the, the solution, but definitely not the whole solution. I think people who are immediately involved and close to the athletes or the team or whoever it is, need to be aware of how to speak up if they see something going on. Yeah, and I, and I was struck by the examples that you gave. I think it was McDonald's um, CEO, for example, about punitive measures for the top that, that ensures that it doesn't happen because uh, rather than blaming the, the person perhaps in a lower power status, um, that actually the, the, the effect, the result, the consequences is born at the top. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's sometimes a lot of pushback on this of like, oh, wait, this, this happened. And now you're going to oust a CEO who brings in this company, yeah. you know, billions of dollars, but it's, it's just so interesting that there's this gut reaction to protect the person on top. Like, why would we ruin their lives? Um, and potentially all these investors. So it's all, it's for a long time, it's been that the lower power person was very expendable, right? And so a lot of these new rules and regulations that have come into place that make the um, sort of punitive measures 
a little more balanced so that the person on top can actually be held accountable are kind of writing this this unbalance that you know we had for so long and one of the examples i give is like monica lewinsky and bill clinton right so mm. i mean when that all came out bill clinton stayed president you know he never had a problem finding work you know he he stayed in this really powerful position and you know has done so many things in the years since whereas monica you know faced just incredible media scrutiny had a really hard time finding work and just suffered a lot from that um, fallout and again it's it, the lower power person winds up often in those cases suffering so much more and so there is um an element of these kinds of newer policies of kind of rebalancing things yeah the, uh, i love that quote that you shared from monica lewinsky no one asked bill clinton to change his surname and and that just strikes at the heart of that sense of you know that just you know the power, the the power is held at that top end, and and almost a bubble of protection around that person. And yeah, as soon as you mention that, it just maybe go, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Vanessa, what do you hope is the legacy of your book? Um, I mean, I really hope that it reassures people because. I have found this research so reassuring. Um, I think a lot of us have a lot of social anxiety and worries about how we come across to other people, whether we can ask other people for help, whether we should go up and talk to other people, you know, all these kinds of doubts. And I've used this research for so long to reassure myself when I have those doubts. You know, actually, the research shows that this conversation was fine. You should stop, you know, beating yourself up about it, or you should just ask this person for help, or, you know, you liked what that person said, you should tell them, you know? And so all of that has been incredibly reassuring and empowering to me. And so that is one major takeaway. And then, as I said, you know, there's this other part where I really also hope that people take away this responsibility element, this idea that people do listen to the things you say, you know, um, even if you don't see them doing it, they may still be thinking about that next week. And so we should think about the way that we talk to other people and the information we spread and the things that we ask people to do. Um, so one of the, the other things that I say in the book is that we all have things that reverberate in our heads from people who said something maybe years ago that they probably don't even remember they said to us and we can remember it to this day and maybe reflect on it regularly. And that's true for other people as well. They have the things we say reverberating in their heads. And so one of the big things I hope people take away from this is to make sure that the things they do say to other people count because they may mean more than we realize. Yeah, I mean, I've got such a sense of that, of <clears throat> encouraging people to be authentic, um, to celebrate and recognize the influence that they have. Uh, and that's a good thing but also I had that balance of being mindful and protect and be careful with your influence to um, just being conscious of, of necessarily taking it too far, taking it the wrong direction, it being a negative thing. So I'm gonna channel the liking principle and encourage people to, to check out your book. But then other than the book, so you have more influence than you think, um, where else can people follow you and follow along? Yeah, so you can find me at my website, which is vanessabonds.com. 
Uh, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at profbonds uh, is my handle. Wonderful. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Mm-hmm.